You are listening to a teaching from Reality LA. Pick me up, uh, Matthew chapter two, verse one. I love how it tells me how long I'm talking. It doesn't tell me how long I have. So um, here we go. Matthew chapter two, pick me up in verse one. Matthew writes, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, parenthetically, also known as the Magi, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, make note of this phrase, we'll unpack it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Lies. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is incredible. If I had more time, I'd tell you that the movement of this star is not coincidental or happenstance. It is a, it is a wonderful picture of the providence of the hand, uh, of the providence of God. I love what Tony Evans says. The providence of God is simply the hand of God in the glove of time. When they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, would you speak to us we have come not out of sentimentality that this is just a nice time of the year to sing some familiar songs, to sprinkle a little Jesus at the center of a consumeristic culture. But may we have come like the Magi to worship Christ. So I pray, Lord God, that Jesus, you would be exalted that you would be magnified. Take my feeble attempts at articulation. And they're feeble. They, they can't move the needle in our hearts. But Jesus, you can. There, there are people in this room right now who don't know you, who are here maybe because they feel overwhelmed or whatever it may be, these people do not need to hear the thoughts of a middle-aged man. They need to hear from an eternal God. So would you speak? Would you move? Would you produce great joy in us? Would you produce worship in us? Would you be so kind as to save someone's soul? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
His name was William Chatterton Dix. The year is 1865. Here is William. He's working in insurance. All of a sudden, he has a life-altering moment. He becomes debilitatingly sick. He, he's bedridden, 1865. He is at death's door. He would ultimately garner his strength. He would be healed. It'd be a long process of recovery in the midst of that profound depression. Some of us been down that road, are down that road. It's the dark night of the soul for William. Yet in the middle of all that, he has what he can only later on describe as a, a spiritual renewal. 1865, he's now immersed in the scriptures. He's reading about Jesus. God is doing a work of grace in his heart. So much so that one day he's moved. He takes a pen, dips it in the ink, and scribbles a few lines of poetry across a sheet of paper. Six years later, those few lines of poetry on his sickbed get, get set to an old English tune, and it turns into one of the most beloved Christmas carols ever. What child is this? The inspiration for that was the movement of the Spirit of God in overwhelming times as he read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. He catches a vision of Jesus. He's overwhelmed. And watch it now. He asked the penultimate question of life in this carol. What child is this? The question of life is the question of meaning. And the question of meaning is the question of Jesus. Bono, that's right. We're going from William Chatterton Dix, England, to Bono. He wrestled with this question. Look with me at what he says. He says the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius, but actually Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. So I ask myself a question. A lot of people have asked, who is this man? What child is this? And was he who he said he was? Or was he just a religious nut? And there it is. That's the question. 
I mean, no doubt if you've read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and you hear him talk about Lord, lunatic, or liar, you understand where, where, where Bono, at least intellectually, is wrestling with this question from. So I just want you to understand if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, welcome, either in the room or online. We absolutely love it. And um, so what Bono is saying is he, he, he's either exactly who he said he was or he's a complete nutcase, but you can't just treat him as if he's Thomas, uh, Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or Frederick Douglass or um, Flannery O'Connor. You, you can't treat him as a nice historical figure that you can kind of glean some things from because he actually said he's God. So if, listen, listen, um, you know, there's been a lot of cult leaders throughout the years. I think about Jim Jones. Um, um, anytime these individuals say they're God, but they're wearing bifocals, I'm not buying it. So Jesus doesn't give us the option to sit on the fence. That's what Bono is saying. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying in Mere Christianity. So as we, we, we matriculate our way through, as we journey through this text, we are confronted either, either yes, he's Lord, or a complete nutcase. There is no middle ground. So as we look at this text, I want to engage the question, what child is this? William Chatterton Dick's question, what, what, what child is this? We're going to learn three things about him. We're going to learn that, first of all, he's a global child. Secondly, we're going to learn that he is a demanding child. And if you thought your two-year-old's demanding, nothing on Jesus. Thirdly, we're, we're going to learn that he is a unique child. At the centerpiece of our text, we're introduced to a group of individuals who are simply known as the wise men in my translation. Other translations of the Bible call, call them the magi. Uh, we don't know much about them. Um, we, we really don't even know how many there were. Now, I know you've been culturally formed to say, well, of course, there's three of them. Nothing in the text says there's just three. We get the number three because of the number of gifts, but don't act like every time you go to a party, you bring a gift. <laughs> right? So I just want you to understand, we don't know how many of them there are. We know the amount of gifts. We, we do know that they're probably individuals of affluence. They, they, they probably um, are a bit wealthy. Well, why do we say that? Just look at the nature of the gifts. Right? This, this ain't something they went to a thrift store to get. I mean, this is, this is the good stuff. We know that the text says they're from back east. A lot of conjecture tells us maybe Babylon, maybe, maybe Persia. Some go as far as to say maybe even Africa. In fact, several of the items on this list are very African in its origin. If you're a person of color, I just want you to understand that Africa plays a major part in Jesus' story. Not long after this, he'll become an immigrant in Egypt. Uh, and I went to Bible college, so please forgive me, but last I checked, Egypt is in Africa. They're called the Magi. They are astrologers, not astronomers. 
Uh, astronomy deals with the movement of the stars. Astrology deals with the message of the stars. Astronomy is scientific. Astrolo astrology is mystic. Because of that, they, were, they would have been deeply despised by the Jews. The Jews could not stand the Magi. They looked at them as unregenerate pagans, not worth the time of day. And yet notice with me, if you will, the profound juxtaposition of our text. Who is Jesus rejected by? The king of the Jews. Who is he worshiped by? These, these Gentile pagans. John would say it this way of Jesus. He, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. What this text communicates is that no one ethnicity, no one people group has a monopoly on this baby Jesus. He is worshiped by foreigners. He is a global Jesus. He is a Jesus who transgresses all kinds of lines. He transgresses in our text literally ethnic lines. This is what we see in the life of Jesus. We see in a very well-documented text, John chapter 4, Jesus doing the unthinkable as a, as a Jew, as an embodied minority, an embodied Jew. He takes his Jewish followers and he stops in an ethnically uncomfortable place known as Samaria. Everyone else would have circumvented that. He says, no, we're going to stop here. And he has a conversation with a woman at the well. He transgresses ethnic lines. Um, Dale Bruner, a great scholar, says this along these lines. Will you look at it with me? By placing the Magi in his Christmas story, as he had the Gentiles in his genealogy, Matthew wishes to say that God surmounts racial and moral barriers to his saving work by calling to the Son those considered most unworthy. The Magi are walking illustrations of God's Catholic, he means by that, universal grace. I will show love to those who are called unloved, quoting from the scriptures, and to those who are called not my people, I will say, you are my people. And they, were, they will answer, you are our God. Jesus is able to transgress ethnic lines and take the kingdom of God into very uncomfortable places because he transcends ethnic lines. Oh, I ain't hearing any amens, and as a chocolate preacher, that bothers me. You're begging for a long sermon because I don't know that you're getting it. That's what I'm talking about. So what I want you to understand here is right down the street, the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church, legendary church. It's a wonderful chocolate church. For years, it was pastored by the legend, the Dr. E.V. Hill. If you have not heard Dr. E.V. Hill preach, do not die and go to heaven without first hearing him preach. Tell the deaf angel to hold off. Hold off, Gabriel. I got to YouTube this guy. <laughs> so he's back in, the, back in the 70s. The Black Panther Party is coming after E.V. Hill, accusing him of preaching a white Jesus and doing violence 
to his own people, African-Americans. He responds in a sermon this way. I love it. I can hear him now. Look at it with me. He said, I don't know nothing about a white Christ. I know about Christ, a savior named Jesus. I don't know what color he is. He was born in brown Asia. He fled to black Africa and he was in heaven before the gospel got to white Europe. So I don't know what color he is. I do know one thing. If you bow at the altar with color on your mind and get up with color on your mind, go back again and keep going back until you no longer look at his color, but at his greatness and his power. C.V. Hill. By the way, don't YouTube him while I'm preaching. Wait later. (laughs) So if Jesus transgresses ethnic lines, is that true of you? If your dinner tables and relationships are pretty much homogenous, I don't know how close, especially in a city like L.A., you're following Jesus. This ain't a progressive agenda, it's a biblical agenda. Not only does this global child transgress ethnic lines, he transgresses economic lines. One of his followers in the, in, in the broader pool of followers is a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy individual. We know that because Jesus would be buried in a tomb that Joseph bought. He's a man of means. We actually see Jesus going up to uh, Zacchaeus, a very wealthy individual, and inviting himself over to Zacchaeus's house. He had wealthy friends, but he also hung out with poor people, people like blind Bartimaeus and so many others. Jesus Christ, this global child, What child is this? He is one who transgresses economic lines. I remember one summer I was taking a summer class at Oxford University. If you know anything about Oxford University, it is a collection of colleges, about 38 of them, I believe. I was studying at Keeble College. One of the great things about Keeble College is right across the street is Lincoln College. If you know anything about Lincoln College, that's where John Wesley, uh, the great founder of the Methodist movement, attended. Um, When John Wesley was a college student there at Lincoln College, Oxford, he looked at his finances one year and says, how much do I need to live off of? Uh, He says, I need to live off of 28 pounds. Anything I get over 28 pounds, I shall give to the poor. That first year he made 30 pounds, lived off the 28, uh, gave the other two away. He says, huh, I shall do that for the rest of my life. 28 pounds is enough. One year he made 1,500 pounds through the sale of what they then called his pamphlets, but he lived off the 28 and lived off the other 1,472 pounds. Fact check me, I went to Bible college. I think that's right. But what I want you to understand is what led all that What led John Wesley to ask a completely un-American question when it came to finances, the question of enough, was the missional call to follow Jesus. Listen, I know where I am. I'm in California, I get it. I just moved from San Jose to Raleigh. Life is really good for me now. Sold a house in San Jose, bought one in Raleigh. Life is really good for me now. But I kind of grieve living in Raleigh and not living in California. Oh, yeah, it's, it's great economically. But you have this thing called cultural Christianity, which I know is everywhere, but it's really prevalent down south where I sprinkle in just enough Jesus to be acceptable, but not too much to be fanatical. The thing I miss about California, California, if you're a believer, it feels like every day's a street fight. 
you're either all in or you're all out. And some of you all are living in apartments and you're just going, man, why, why don't I just get out of this? I mean, what I put down for first month, last month, I mean, that's a six acre, acre ranch in Nashville. But we're not in this for the financial security. We're in this to follow Jesus. This global Jesus transcends moral lines. I mean, just think of who Jesus hung out with. John chapter three is a classic conversation with a very moral religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Very moral, very upright person. But then he hung out at parties with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He's teaching at the temple one day and he, he speaks words of challenge and comfort to a woman caught in adultery. Here's what I want you to understand. Eh. I'll say it this way. Philip Yancey in his wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace. If you haven't read that, you gotta read it. And one of the opening stories of the book, he just talks of a time a group of Christians in Chicago were sharing their faith with a prostitute who figured out this prostitute that she could make more money leasing out her daughter in one night than she could herself for a whole week. These Christians are talking to her about the hope of the gospel. They invite her to church. I'll never forget her response. She says, church, why would I ever want to go there? They'd only make me feel worse than what I already do. The tragedy of those words is not what she said, but there's truth in what she said. Oh, reality, LA, I think what this global Jesus wants me to communicate to you is, you know you are living and following closely in his steps when you're almost impossible to label. It's a tragedy of the church of Jesus Christ today where you can just drive down the street and go, man, that's the Republican church, that's the Democratic church, that's the, that's the conservative church, that's the progressive church, that's the black church, that's the white church. In a global city like LA, labels should not fit. The only label that should fit is we are the kingdom of heaven church. And if your gospel fits neatly in any kind of a political or economic or ethnic uh, bag, your gospel, your Jesus is too small. What child is this? He's a global child. Secondly, what child is this? He's a demanding child. I'm reminded now of that great question that was asked in that great book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when it was speaking of Aslan, the Christ figure. The question is asked, is he safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Jesus is not safe, but he's good. And he's gonna demand a lot. How do we know this? The antagonist in our text is a guy by the name of Herod. Herod is simply the king of the Jews. Now, some of you, if you're new to the scriptures, wait, wait a minute, how's he king of the Jews? I thought the Romans were in charge. The Romans are in charge. They have kind of ultimate authority from a human, God-appointed perspective, but the Romans allowed other nations like the Jews to have a modicum, a measure of power and authority under their rule. So they said, okay, we'll let you have a king, but that king is under our rule. The king of the Jews is a guy by the name of Herod. I wish I had time to completely unpack Herod, but Herod, you need to understand, was one of the most self-absorbed, 
narcissistic, paranoid leaders in world history. And when Herod was backed into a corner, his typical move was to double down on power. What that meant was killing people he viewed as a threat. He killed his own wife, had two of his sons killed. In fact, there was a popular saying in Herod's day, better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Here's a guy who just extremely paranoid. In fact, I love this. Josephus tells us that right before Herod was to die, he was so paranoid that when he died, no one would cry at his funeral. He gave instructions that right after his death, the most influential people in Jerusalem would be rounded up and that they would be killed so that people would actually cry at his funeral. And just a, a deranged lunatic. He hears about Jesus this king, and he's, the text says he's, he's deeply disturbed, he's troubled, along with all Jerusalem. Our text was originally written in a language called Greek. The Greek word for troubled is a picturesque word. It was used of a very calm pool that all of a sudden had a rock thrown into it, and the rippling effect of that, that's the visual of Herod. He's very calm, and all of a sudden he gets this, this news, and he's deeply disturbed. Why is he disturbed? Don't miss this, I'm at your neighborhood. Herod is disturbed because Herod is spot on here. Herod is going, wait a minute. This baby is the promised Messiah who's promised to be king. He's born in my same jurisdiction. Herod is disturbed because he understands ain't enough room for two kings in the same place. And the tragedy is so many of us right now haven't caught on to that. All of us have an inner Herod who longs to be king of our lives. We all have an inner Herod that we wrestle with moment by moment, day by day, who says, I will call the shots. That inner Herod is more theologically named pride. Thinking now of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, the fountainhead to all vice is pride. The sin beneath every sin is pride. Why do you gossip? Pride. Why do you lie? Pride. Why are you greedy? Pride. All roads lead back to pride. We have a desire to be king of our own lives. And Jesus is not into co-regencies. Jesus is not into sharing authority. It's trite, but it's true. Either he is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. I'll never forget. I grew up in a very authoritative home. Um, I, 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 you know, typical African-American homes, especially of my generation. Uh, my parents just weren't into discussions about what you felt like and things of that nature. Uh, they said it, you did it, no questions asked. I guess in that sense, they're Herod. Sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening in on this. Um, but I'll never forget one day, my brother's about seven years old. He's in, a, in the dining room. Uh, he's supposed to be doing his homework, but it's obvious he's goofing around. My mom is in another room. She hears my brother goofing around and she says, Brendan, do your homework, to which my brother responds, I ain't got to do what you say, to which my mama runs into the room, and immediately my brother, I can see him now, puts his hands on his head and says, oh, Lord Jesus, help me. <laughs> my brother lost his mind. 
He thought he was calling the shots in the jurisdiction of my mama's house. You know, we laugh at that, but we do that every day. It's the nature of sin. I'm not doing what you say. Someone here today, you need, you need to understand that. that. That's exactly where you're at. You know what God has to say about how we steward our bodies? But you're going to be king. And we'll call the shots. You know what he has to say about how we're supposed to be stewarding the finances he puts in our hands? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be king. Well, Brian, why should I let Jesus be king? Hear me. Because Herod never gives life, Herod takes life. It really is counterintuitive. We think the way to life is to indulge, it's to do what we want, but that's not the way to happiness and contentment. Listen, I've been in pastoral ministry a long long time. Take it from me. I'm not gonna give you any Bible right now, but just take it from me. I have never in my life met a happy adulterer. I just haven't met that person. I have not met a fulfilled person who spends money the way they want to spend it. I just haven't met that. Listen, we're in in LA. There's a lot of wealthy, rich people, you know, and here's the great juxtaposition of it all. Here's the great irony of it all. Wealthy, incredibly affluent people who just kind of spend money they want to spend it. They receive worship from man. That is not a recipe for contentment. But I know a lot of poor people who have more contentment than people living in Hancock Park. Why is this? Look at what our text says about the rulership of Jesus. Matthew says in verse six, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from, uh, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Why should I give my life to Jesus? Because Jesus is not Herod. He's not here to take life from you. He's here to restore life to you, the abundant life. That's why he says, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. What does the shepherding rulership and kingship of Jesus look like? I don't have time to get into it, but read Psalm 23. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He just kind of paints this picture of composite care. We serve a good king who ain't paranoid who ain't narcissistic, he is for you. He has died for you. He's given his life to you. He has the best of your intentions in mind. What child is this? He's a global king, a global child. He's a demanding child, but finally, he's a unique child. Let's just jog through this. Verse 11 It's all about the uniqueness of Jesus. And if you're here and you don't call yourself a Christian and you're wondering, who is Jesus? What child is this? Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child. Notice, not infant, different Greek word here. Jesus is probably closer to two right now. With Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, here it is, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Why do the gospel writers spell this out? Because These gifts give us a view into who Jesus is. Who is he? They give him gold. Gold is royalty. 
signifies his kingship. I don't need to belabor this. We've already talked about this, but there's other places in our text that speaks of the royalty of Jesus. Verse one, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Why is that important? That's where it was prophesied the king of the Jews would be born. He, he is, it, he's a king there. He's, he's called the son of David. He comes through the Davidic lineage of David. Why? That is a royal title. He is king, but secondly, they give him frankincense. Frankincense was used by priests in the temple for the worship of God. This is important because when you went to the temple, you were overwhelmed in a very sensory manner by by, by the screaming of animals and by the smell. The temple did not smell pleasant. So the priests kept incense with them, frankincense. So this idea of frankincense It is saying of Jesus, he is unique, he is king, but he is also our priest. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. The priestly ministry of Jesus. He mediates on our behalf. He advocates on our behalf. That that is what he does. The, The New Testament would say of Jesus, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I'm not here to belittle Catholic religion. I think there's wonderful Catholics who will be in the kingdom. But what Protestant theology anchored in the scriptures say is when I sin, I don't need a human mediator. I have Jesus. And I love what Hebrews 4 says about the priestly ministry of Jesus. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, all things, all things, as we are yet without sin. Will you think about that? The humanity of Jesus Christ, he was tempted in all things, tempted with greed, tempted with lust, tempted with lying, which means this, when I go to him, when I have failed, when I have messed up, I don't get condemnation, I get empathetic advocacy. Jesus says, I've been there, I've done that, worn the t-shirt and the hat, I didn't sin, I overcame it, but I can relate. I want that kind of Jesus. What a child, I want that, I need that, daily I blow it. Prone to wander, Lord I feel it. But I have a high priest who empathizes, who advocates. Friends, if you don't know Christ, there's no better deal in town. Finally, they say it gives them, they gave him myrrh. I love this, you know what myrrh is? It's embalming fluid. It was used to embalm the dead. When Jesus was on the cross, Mark actually tells us this, that on the cross they offered Jesus myrrh mixed with wine. Why did they do that? Because myrrh also was a painkiller. So that myrrh is associated with suffering and death. Who is this child? Who is Jesus? He is king, he is priest. He is our glorious substitute. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We deserve an eternity in hell. There was
wasn't enough quiet times I could do to pay my debt. There's not enough giving I can do to pay my debt. There's not enough coming to church I can do to pay my debt. And Jesus says, no worry. I will die in your place and for your sins. Never get so sophisticated in your theology that you refuse to be amazed by the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ. You need to hear that. Every sin you've ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit has been paid by the blood of Jesus. All right, so let's, let's end with this. What do I do with that? Thank you for showing it, but, but, but what do I do? There's three responses in our text to this Jesus. One, you can respond like Herod. Herod, his response is hostility. A little while later, we're gonna see Herod issuing an edict. I want everyone two years or older who's a male, two years of age, I want them killed. Why? Because that's the age of the Messiah. I need the Messiah killed, hostile. 11 of the 12 disciples will die a hostile death. Why? They lived in a culture filled with figurative Herods. They were martyrs. Even to this day, Christians all over the world having their homes taken from them, thrown in prison, being persecuted, even dying. It's the spirit of Herod. They are hostile. Yes, I know where I'm at. I'm, at. I'm in LA. Some of you are in entertainment. Some of you will actually say in entertainment, there are people that you work for that are hostile to Christianity. It's the spirit of Herod. It's the culture in which we live. Listen, some of you understand this. You're dreading Christmas dinner. Christmas, Christmas dinner. And you have people sitting at your table pretty much like, don't, don't bring up Jesus. I'm like, but it's Christmas. <laughs> Hostile. My concern here is that's the culture in which we live, but in all probability, if you're here today, you probably don't necessarily deal with that. There's another response, and this is where a lot of people are. Remember Herod calls for the scribes and the chief priests? He says, tell me about this Jesus. They give him information, but do they go with the magi to go worship him? No. The chief priests and the scribes, they are indifferent to Jesus. He's here, but he hasn't worked his way into their lives. That's my fear for some of you. Some of you, when it comes to Jesus, you're auditing him. You know what it means to audit a class? When you audit a class, here's what you're saying. Give me the information, just not the responsibilities. I, I don't want this class to really intrude on my way of life. I'll access it on my terms. My concern for some of you, you're auditing Jesus. I'll take a few notes about you. I'll give some money. I might even search, show up and serve, but as it relates to Monday through Saturday, my day to day, nothing's really changed. Indifferent. He's here. It just hasn't worked his way all throughout your life. How does he really want us to respond? Like the Magi. 
This is a great sacrifice. One commentator says, they probably walked the equivalent of six months to get to Jesus. Sacrifice. There's great joy. I mean, there's no dialing it in. In just a few moments, we're gonna be, we're gonna be singing songs about Jesus. And if the Magi were here, there's no familiarity, indifference, just kind of muttering the words. No, there's exceedingly great joy because he's worked his way through their lives. There's worship. He's changed the trajectory of my life. And then the text says they go home a completely other way than which they came. He's rerouted their steps. Is that you? Is that you? Last thing. I got a really good buddy of mine, in fact, at dinner last night with your pastor. We were talking about him. I won't say his name on the recording, but a really great buddy of mine and just a godly guy. And I, we were hanging out one day. I said, man, tell me, how'd you, how'd you become a follower of Jesus Christ? He goes, man, you would ask me that. He said, man, I just grew up in a very godless house. He says, my dad was big time... Um, uh, baseball coach and it's a big time athlete and all that that came with. <clears throat> Cheating on my mom, running around, just, just the whole nine. He said, we had a Sunday afternoon tradition. We'd sit down and we'd watch a Broncos game together. Every Sunday, we'd sit down and watch the game. And my, my dad on this Sunday is doing what he does every Sunday. He's chugging beers, watching the game. He says, we're sitting there watching the game. He says, I don't remember all the specifics, but I do know this. One of the teams was about to kick a field goal or an extra point, and all of a sudden the camera pans to a dude in a clown suit holding a sign that says Romans 10, 9, and 10. My dad says to me, get me a Bible. I had no idea. I mean, I'm thinking this is the beer talking, so I don't, I don't do anything. Dad says, you heard me, get me a Bible. He says, I scour the house, come back with a Bible. We fumble our way to Romans 10, 9, and 10. He says, my dad gets on his knees and prays that God would come into his life. He says, I didn't think anything of it. But when I tell you the next day, my, life, my dad's life was completely changed. He stopped running around on my mother. The sense of joy, the sense of fulfillment, the sense of happiness, the sense of peace, no more angry outbursts changed the way he spoke. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if your testimony is pretty much, not much has changed. Eh, he may have rearranged the furniture, but you're not a brand new creation. You may be a scribe, a chief priest. Friends, where are you? Where are you this Christmas season? We're gonna end our time just kind of doing what we do every week. Responding to God's word in worship, receiving the sacrament. There's gonna be people lined up that you can go and pray with. Some of you, maybe, maybe the prayer is, I just wanna repent. I'm a follower of Jesus, but, but Herod's really been sitting on my throne for the last couple of weeks. There's no condemnation here. High priests who can sympathize. 
receive the grace and forgiveness of God, but others of you, I believe the Holy Spirit is saying, I, I need to turn to Jesus. I need to submit to him. So Father, may there be a spirit of worship in this place. Like the wise men, worship. May there be a spirit of exceedingly great joy because of King Jesus, because of his high priestly ministry, because of his substitutionary atoning work in dying in my place and for my sins. I mean, God, rid us of a spirit of indifference. Give us great joy. And then as we come, Lord God, to the table, we're reminded of myrrh, the suffering of Jesus. We receive your forgiveness. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more audio and video content, please visit realityla.com.